Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 23rd, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament and dads and announcers and whether bad basketball takes away from fantastic finishes. We'll also discuss the early retirement of San Francisco 49ers linebacker Chris Borland, who decided to quit the game at age 24 due to his concerns about head trauma. Cricket writer Andrew Miller will join us for a conversation about the Cricket World Cup, which is cranking up for a showdown between the sport's big four of South Africa, India, Australia, and New Zealand. Showdown. Cricket showdown. Are you guys done? Ranking. (laughs) The big four. Save it for the guest. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Gentility. Uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll discuss the best strategy for watching the NCAA tournament and preventing basketball overload. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of panic. Uh, kind of in sound effects mode today. I like that. Showdown. Mode. Showdown. It's a throwdown down under. It's a showdown under. And here with the lowdown on the showdown, the thunder from down under, the Scrabble wonder. <laughs> yes, our our guest is a male stripper. He's <laughs> in review in Las Vegas. Also writes does, about cricket. He's always, he's always uh, people don't know this because our show is not videotaped, but whenever Stefan makes a great point, he rips off the breakaway slacks. <laughs> uh, hey, Mike. Oh, how, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. He's the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. With Mike Pesca, where you can hear uh, comments about breakaway clothing. and uh, <laughs> You didn't say that he is Mike Pesca. You said yes. he's the host of... That's right. I'm making, I'm making you Mike guys Pesca. do He that might not be Mike Pesca. That's right. You guys may know about Slate Plus. Some other people might not know about Slate Plus. Stefan appears to be checking his computer to see uh, what the latest is. You can get your discounts on Slate events, Stefan. You can get early access to Dear Prudence. If you want to know... Uh, what the letter writers have to say a little bit early before they write the letters. If that come gives... on, you're you're beating around the bush. Think about last week's Slate Plus on this show. What did I give the listeners? Your uh, NCAA tournament picks. A rock solid bet the house. I can't do this every time, but I gave oh, you a the, rock uh, solid bet Saint the John's. house recommendation that St. John's was going to lose. Going to lose big, might hold it close, but will definitely lose. And all of that happened. So Slate, all of it. So Slate Plus is basically the uh, Spiff's Sports Almanac of yes <laughs> of podcasting. If you know how to use Slate Plus, Slate Plus more than pays for itself with Mike's <laughs> Lock of the Week. <laughs> all right. If you've been curious about Mike's Locks of the Week, 
Sign up for Slate Plus. You can get uh, two weeks free. If the locks don't work out, you can break Mike's legs or cancel. It's only one lock. Let's let's be clear. It's only one lock per week. Slate.com slash hangupplus. You'll find out soon enough how many locks there are or are not. All right. The uh, 2015 NCAA tournament started out crazy. You might even say there was madness. Mm -hmm. Five games decided by a single point on Thursday. The most ever in a single tournament day. Just too short of the record for most one-point finishes in an entire tournament. Uh, Baylor and Iowa State were upset by Georgia State and UAB, respectively. What were they upset about? Uh, they were in tears over their tournament defeats. That seems to happen a lot in, in say, basketball. Adam Morrison. Piccolo players. Yeah, that was the Villanova Piccolo player. was very sad about losing to North Carolina State in the next round. Uh, UCLA beat SMU on a totally weird goaltending call on a three-pointer. Uh, North Carolina State beat LSU on a buzzer beater. Tears were shed by certain hang-up hosts. Uh, Cincinnati beat Purdue in overtime. Then there were other close calls, Ohio State over VCU. North Carolina beat Harvard, um, and so forth. But since then... It's like sports fun. <laughs> just giving us every But since every then, the close games have been a little bit fewer and farther between her. Uh, North Carolina State did beat Villanova by three. That you gotta, was the you biggest You got to vary your verbs. You got to say walloped. They did. Uh, Wichita State did wallop in-state rival Kansas. They they shocked them. Thundered. With a 13-point win. They, sh- they shocked the Hawks. They shocked um, the world. Did they? So which kind of part of the tournament did you prefer, Mike? The initial day of one-point defeats? Or did you like to see the weekend, the better basketball, the Shockers, the Wolf Pack, just a few like upset salted in, but mostly the favorite teams doing their favorite thing. Well, the great thing about the first couple of rounds, <clears throat> I'm not going to call it the second round. We know the round I speak of where all the teams play, where 32 games are going on and 64 teams play that round, is that it doesn't even matter if the level of basketball isn't that great for a couple of reasons. There's so many more games. It's so exciting. But also the way they cascade, there's always an ending coming up. And the last three minutes or last two minutes of any close game, basically even on the junior high school level, is kind of exciting. These, this is just how human beings are wired. So I watch those in the office. The uh, technology that allows you to skip from game to game is pretty great. And uh, people who didn't know basketball say, oh, you got to watch this in overtime. You got to watch this last shot. And people would come over. And so it's a great advertisement for itself. So yeah, I, I do have to say I do like the first round slash all 64 teams playing rounds game. And that's, that's the reason that the NCAAs are appealing. And that's why they are worth so many billions of dollars. I mean, it's the it's the anonymity of some select number of teams in the first round, athletes we don't know, coaches we've never heard of, schools that we often have never heard of. I mean, Georgia State. I know. went to Georgia State. I attended classes at Georgia State. Mike Pesca knew all about Georgia State <laughs> mm-hmm. then. Did you know much about Ron Hunter and his son? No. So he was, he was at, Ron Hunter's son was definitely, well, let's see, would he have been alive when I was taking classes at Georgia State? Questionable. I'll look that up. And that's the appeal here, isn't it? It's that these Goliaths have to play these schools that we've never heard of. We don't know who the coaches are. We don't know much about the players. And that's the factor that makes it appealing. And Mike's right. It's also this cascade of events. It's this excuse to spend all of these hours watching our computer screens and toggling back and forth um, from game to game. I think that Georgia State piled it on a little bit much. The coach tears his Achilles celebrating in the conference tournament. The coach's son makes the winning shot. They also have Kevin Ware, mm-hmm. the guy who broke his leg horrifically um, against Duke a few years ago. So basically, Kevin tournament. Ware, Kevin Ware is like the Jessica Fletcher, but instead of murders with broken legs. Uh, <laughs> and then they have. Uh, Ryan Harrow, who wasn't even really playing, who transferred away from Kentucky, who was never even talked about, that would be like the number one story on certain lesser teams. Mm-hmm. Georgia State needed to spread out mm-hmm. the storylines to other teams because I felt like there were a lot of you know little known teams. Your your Hamptons, Stefan. You're not sitting here. Ta- Wofford's. You're not you're not sitting here talking about uh, all the fun facts about Hampton. Georgia State, spread the love a little bit. 
Yeah. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Hampton, they were so patronizing to Hampton. It was like a 3-2 lead, and the announcer like, take a photo of that. You could always <laughs> tell your kids you led Kentucky. <laughs> I mean, the, it really was Dream Team versus Angola levels, the announcing of that game. If Hampton were in the Hamptons, that would be, and it would have been a great That story would explain line. some things, yeah. yeah. So Wichita State, I find fascinating. So they're in the third year of a three-year run. Year one, they come in with not quite Hampton levels or Georgia State levels of anonymity, but no one was expecting much of anything from them, and they make the Final Four. Last year, they go undefeated during the regular season, and they come in with, again, not quite like Kentucky levels of hype, but there's the question, can this team go undefeated, become the first team since 1976 Indiana? They draw Kentucky, a number eight seed in the second round, and lose. And what was really the game of the tournament um, played at an incredibly high level, goes down to the last minute, they lose, Kentucky goes on to make the final game. This year, they're a seven seed, they lost Clee Anthony early, it's not quite as good a team, and they finally get their in-state rival Kansas, not as good as last year, but still a very good team. Kansas refuses to schedule them, haven't played them in 22 years, and they just, what do they do? They wallop them, they they shellac them, they thunder, pasted, they, they paste. And so... A, this shows the importance of matchups. They play a number two seed, Kansas, that maybe has a quarter of the talent of last year's number eight seed, Kentucky, that they got matched up against. And now they could face Kentucky again in the Elite Eight. Um, and, and this time the roles would be reversed and Wichita State would be the huge underdog. But it's been fun to follow this team over the last three years because they've had a lot of the same players, Cotton, Baker, Van, Van Vliet. Vliet. And that's, you know, you mentioned the... Davids and the Goliaths, and the names are often the same of these programs, but increasingly the players are not the same. And so you're having to learn, even if it's, you know, Butler again, or even if it's, um, you know, Duke again, you turn on the tournament for the first time. If you haven't been watching the college basketball season, you're like, who are these new players? But with Wichita State, there is a kind of sense of familiarity there that is nice and kind of recalls the NCAA tournament of old. Indeed. I mean, I think what's interesting is that the extremely disparate level of competition between, like, say, a Michigan State seven seed and an Iowa seven seed, they both come out of the same conference, but they they look – you just can get so screwed or benefited by matchups in this tournament. And I think that the seeding in the tournament has gotten better, but there were a couple of uh, seeds that everyone pointed to saying overseeded, underseeded. Georgetown, you can't prove that they were underseeded. They, uh, they gave Utah a good game, but it was a 4-5 game where the 5 was clearly better. The 5 was the favorite, and the 5 won. Utah beat Georgetown. And then the biggest uh, underseeding problem was Izzo's Michigan State Spartans. And because they are Michigan State and he is Izzo, The tournament always says, you know, we don't go on reputation and we don't, well, they don't say reputation, we don't go on past performance. But at some point, aren't they screwing everyone in Michigan State's brackets by not saying, oh, yeah, this is the team that always gets it together and is an incredibly hard out in March, right? Say, hey, listen, we're just going to do based on what you did this year. We're not going to look at past years. I I would say every other college coach would say, yeah, that's good. That's fair. Oh, by the way, you're matching up with Michigan State as a seventh seed. That's entirely unfair. Yeah, it would be unfair to do it any other way, I think. Can't you have the Michigan State example? Can you have the example of like, the, if one team has made Final Fours every other year, now Michigan State didn't make the Final Four last year, but before that, hadn't they made Final Fours every other year? It's the every other year Final Four, well, four rule. What's unfair is them sandbagging. It's like with uh, Kentucky <laughs> exactly. last year. Right. You gotta if if you have like all these number one uh, draft picks, don't uh, play like crap during the regular season and just uh, screw over whatever team uh, matches up against you. You yeah, gotta play hard the, all year. Not make the old players play uh, road games. The Popovich method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so matchups coming up um, that I'm interested in. You've got uh, potential for a Duke Gonzaga. Is that a good versus evil? Who's good? Who's evil? There. You'd, and have I, say, you'd have to say Gonzaga is good because they recruit all these international players who probably don't belong in American schools. Isn't that great? That's what basketball <laughs> That's is all about. Yeah. And the aforementioned Kentucky-Wichita State. Notre Dame-Wichita State should be a good game, too. There were a lot of these close games that, despite what you were saying, Mr. Pesca, the poor 
quality of play did detract. And it's, I'm not just talking about certain teams from certain states, Louisiana states Virginia. that missed their last 12 field goals and six free throws to lose a game by one. But right. the Notre Dame-Butler game that went into overtime was very well played, I thought. And, right, and but- good defense that led to missed shots, but not due to like offensive player error or just yeah. throwing the ball into the but stands it is or anything. So, it is so very hard to tell when it's good. Play. Like, you know, Maryland, West Virginia, ton of turnovers. Uh, is that bad or is that Well, the that's fact a pressing that, team. That's an yeah, that's West the press Virginia exception. causes the most f- turnovers. I think some places where this rears its head is teams that aren't in this used to these situations just make these screwy decisions. You don't even know if they are decisions. So you see Irvine... You know, they have an opportunity to pull off an upset. They have the uh, seven foot six player who's fascinating, but they don't even get. There are a couple of games where down three, the team held for one, which I think is totally stupid. I think that because, because for a number of reasons, namely, I don't mean with four seconds left, with 20 something seconds left, they pulled it out, they held for one. The best you could do is tie with a putback, doesn't even do anything. But also, you're telling your opposition, we have to take a three. And if the most offensive three defense is packing the three point line, you could do that in triplicate and whatever, tenfold, if you know your opponent's taking a three. And in these games, they three don't. Three point even... defense and triplicate? Yeah, they that's nin, that's nintholicate. <laughs> they don't even get the shot off, and you compare that to Michigan State. And I was saying to my friend, "Oh, you see, Izzo's good. They'll hold for one. They do, but then Trice jacks up a stupid three pointer from thirty-one feet. But that's the exact shot that you see. <laughs> that's the exact shot that you see Irvine got to try to." send their game into overtime. Right, and let, so that to me is bad. The seven let, foot six guy was fascinating, by the way. I love the seven six guy. 300 he pounds. played so much longer than he's ever played before. He's no yeah. Sim Bular. I miss Sim Bular, Sim Bular. of New, Me- New Mexico State. All right, let's end this. He uh, went early. He went can we, end this, can we actually end this by just criticizing Reggie Miller a little bit? Sure. Okay. So in, I think the first round, the, there's a three-man booth and some player hits a three and I, I forgot who's uh, doing the game with Miller. Turns to him and says, how do you make that shot? And Miller says, he's good. He's just good. And it gets a little laugh, but you know what? If I'm his broadcast partner, I'm never going to ask him that question again. And I have noticed (laughs) that all the former players like Gottlieb and Miller, they just say things like, here's what you need. You need to stop here and a score down the other end. Thanks a lot. And Grant Hill is not a bad guy. You would just be taking so many notes about like, all right, got to cross that off the things. I can ask (laughs) Reggie Miller. It's like by the... By the end of uh, the tournament, there's going to only be one thing that you can ask Reggie Miller. Yeah, how about that? Uh, just where should we go for dinner? <laughs> Maybe. Any yeah. suggestions? How about, how about that local sports team? All right, let's end. Uh, let's end this with uh, Wisconsin basketball's fascination with the NCAA tournament stenographer. Let's listen to that. If I press a button, yeah, SSS. Oh, no, I knew that. What? But if I go. Oh, you typed the word! <laughs> <laughs> so what do I do with these things? So, oh, how'd you do it? So all of the keys combined. So that was uh, Nigel Hayes of Wisconsin who reacted to a, like, three-keystroke combination producing and. a word as if he had just seen, like, Atlantis rise from the bottom of the, the sea. <laughs> Except that Josh, you need let's we need to stipulate that stenography is fascinating. You ever seen one of those little machines? Oh, stipulated, highly stipulated. Fascinating. S T I P U L. That's like twelve keystrokes to get stipulated mm-hmm. out of stenography, or like a half a keystroke, depending on on the machine. I love that they were trolling the stenographer. They weren't trolling the stenographer. Well, they were during the press conference over the weekend. Nigel Hayes was asked some basketball question about three-point shooting or something. And he then and he said, Well, before I answer that question, I'd like to say a few words. Caddy Wampus, onomatopoeia, and anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> um, now back to your question. Two of those words, by the way, not in standard college dictionaries, anti-disestablishmentarianism, not in most dictionaries. That's one of those bogus words that really doesn't exist. I it think not being in a, a dictionary word. is the bogus thing. Caddy Wampus, though, very interesting choice of word. It's actually an alternate spelling for catawampus, C-A-T-A-W-A-M-P-U-S, which is an imaginary <laughs> fierce wild animal. I've never heard cattywampus. Opening up a can of catwomp on you? No, you never heard Adjectival that. form defined as fierce, savage, destructive. He might be the favorite basketball player of Hang Up and Listen. Nigel, this is your time. This is your moment. This is your one shining moment. Womp it up. All right. So you might think that this podcast is more than, than just a sports podcast. It's a word 
podcast, we talk about breakaway clothing. But the good thing is you don't have to just listen to Hang Up and Listen if you want to learn about words and breakaway clothing. We've got the Lexicon Valley podcast. It's part of the uh, Slate Panoply Network. I'm sure that there's going to be a breakaway clothing podcast coming at some point. They demand it. We've still got the Gab Fest. We've got Mom and Dad are Fighting. We've got new podcasts from the New York Times Magazine, from Vulture. We've got John Dickerson's Whistle Stop. We've got Happier with Gretchen Rubin. What's the name of that breakaway clothing podcast again, Mike? I forget what, I forget what they're calling it. What's the, the name the, of, that, of that breakaway clothing podcast? What's the name uh, of it's that? Called, it's called D-Snapchat. <laughs> D-Snapchat? Un, Unsnapchat. There we go. It's called, it, it's called Unsnapchat. How about D-Pantsed? D-Pantsed. That was considered. It was rejected? It was rejected. You don't uh, like, un, I like unsnapped chat. <laughs> unsnapped you added the chat. PED, unsnapped chat. We've okay. been workshopping yeah. this in the last 10 seconds. Did you like, I thought I was maybe going to have to ask you what the name of it was about 10 times, but I think I only had to ask six times. I think that's good. All right, you can hear all of these on Stitcher, SoundCloud, on the apps. Uh, you know, improv is improv is supposed to be yes and not not now now joke, <laughs> instant joke now. <laughs> All right, here are some of the first offerings of the Panoply Network. Go to iTunes.com/slash/Panoply. Also, Josh Levine learns the rules of improv coming in 2016. <laughs> That's a new podcast too. In week seven of the 2014 NFL season, Chris Borland stepped in as a starter to replace uh, his 49ers teammate, linebacker Patrick Willis. From that game through week 15, when Borland was placed on injured reserve uh, himself with an ankle injury, the rookie out of Wisconsin led the entire NFL in tackles. It was a promising start to what turned out to be a very short career. Last week, the 24-year-old Borland told Mark Fanaru, Wada, and Steve Fanaru of ESPN's Outside the Lines that he was retiring due to concerns over his long-term health in particular, the effects of repeated blows to the head. Let's listen to Borland explain his decision. Yeah, I, can, I mean, I can relate. I mean, from the outside looking in, that it would, wouldn't make sense to a lot of people. And I've had close friends who said, well, why don't you just you know, play one more year? It's a lot more money. You probably, you probably won't get hurt. Um, I just don't want to get in a situation where I'm negotiating my health for, for money. And uh, who knows how many hits is too many. And my, my end goal is a long-term picture. It's not... Um, I'm not willing to sacrifice 15 to 20 years of my life, even if I die healthy, but younger. You know, I want to live a long, healthy life. and I could be wrong. I hope I am. I hope my friends and teammates who've, who've played this game and continue to decide to play this game are healthy. But um, for me, just personally, I don't think the risks were worth what I could gain from football. So, uh, Stefan, Chris Borland has taken pains to say that this is the decision that he's made for himself and that he's not saying that football should end or that anyone else should make the same calculation he did. He just wants players to be informed and that he did his research, and this is the decision that he made for himself. But the natural questions that have been raised is what is the bigger meaning of this? Is this starting a wave of early retirements? A wave? I doubt it. Um, I think a lot of this is going to be unseen to the public. I think a lot of this is going to be high school kids or college players deciding to stop playing, parents not letting children play. I mean, this is just, it's all very incremental and, and probably very small. I mean, this, these are going to be impossible for, you know, to put together in some sort of quantitative analysis. Um, it's going to be very anecdotal and a lot of it's going to be hidden. You know, there was the, your classic hot take overreaction on both sides when Borland made this announcement. Um, you know, Mike Florio on Pro Football Talk talking about the football haters are going to say this is the death of football. Um, and on the other side, you know, people predicting an avalanche of early retirements. I don't think either is going to be true, but it's certainly reflective of the evolution of this conversation. I think it was inevitable that some well-known player in his prime with a promising future and the possibility of earning tens of millions of dollars was going to walk away at some point. And, you know, the fact that he was only 24 and not, say, 30 does make a big difference. And I think, you know, how much influence it'll have on players, who knows? Um, but I think it will have some that, that we're just not going to see until we see another kid say, I'm not playing football anymore. I think this guy is a hero, an absolute hero, 
Because people who've made similar decisions usually have played in the league for a number of years, have gotten the million dollar, couple million dollar contract, you know, made the choice that you have enough money to fall back on mm-hmm. that. It will really make a difference in your life. You can't live on it forever. The other guys who've made similar choices know that they have to get real jobs. And often, you know, they've left money on the table and maybe they didn't save all their money. This guy got paid for one year. He got the league minimum. He's giving back a prorated portion of his salary. Which, by the way, the 49ers should refuse to accept. But anyway. The other thing I would say is this, to to address the Mike Florio's kind of arguing against the straw man of the football hater crowd. I don't know. The conspiracy. Yeah. I don't know that a lot of people who are pointing to this and saying something similar to what Stefan just said are football haters, but people are so defensive and circle the wagons who, I don't know, defend the sport or in the pockets of uh, the commissioner or knuckle draggers or stupid people, whatever. They, they, they attack this guy. They think this guy is, they try to dismiss his example. I say, look at it. I think he's a locker room distraction. Sure, cancer in the clubhouse. I say look at it a different way. This guy, this example, is not the death knell of football. This example can be an affirmative example of what football should be, which is to say an argument that different adult males make choices that are appropriate for them. I mean, this is like the most libertarian, pro agency, Mm -hmm. a, a person with agency, being able to walk away from the game. We've always heard how strong the ties were. This guy says, I've looked at all the information that's out there, and it is out there now, and I've made this choice. So why can't you say, you know, this strengthens the game. Everyone else who's playing had the exact opportunity to look at the information that this guy did. Yeah, I'll acknowledge it's extraordinary that he did what he did, but it shows that it's not impossible. So all these, not beyond the libertarian argument, I think it's even a decent legal argument. How could you have lawsuits from this point forward? If Chris Borland walked away from the game, how could anyone who enters the league in 2000, whatever, 13 on say, I didn't have the information. So well, I they think can't. And that's obviously, I think it's a good day for football, actually. And they can't say I didn't have the information. And they, they couldn't even if Chris Borland didn't exist because of the settlement. I mean, the settlement stipulates that there will be no litigation going forward. If you are a current or future player, you do not have standing to sue the NFL on the grounds that you didn't have the information. And Chris Borland, you are absolutely right, Mike, is an affirmation that the information exists so that rational adults can make a decision. You know, on the, and I'm going to ask Josh, Josh, I want to ask you about John Urschel, the Baltimore Ravens lineman, you know, and published mathematician, who wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune over the weekend saying why he's still playing football, which I thought was equally interesting to Chris Borland's decision. Yeah, John Urschel is, I think we can say without much controversy, (laughs) the smartest player in the NFL. I mean, this guy is... Maybe in the history of the NFL. Writing, um, you know, papers that are published in, like, legit mathematical journals. The dude is like a super genius. It's the Mathematical Players' Journal, to be fair. (laughs) His nickname on the Ravens is The Professor, of course. But his yeah, but that you get that nickname for like going <laughs> if you to classes your senior year and wearing glasses. <laughs> so the argument that he made in the Players Tribune was extremely simple, like not written in language that was hard to understand or not very long. It was there just, were there I no, like to hit dudes. There were no graphs. There were no graphs. Borland said the same thing. He loved the violence of the game. Right. But he said um, Urschel wrote like he respected. Borland and he envied him, but he had made the calculation himself, knowing the same stuff that Borland knows, presumably, that he just likes the physical contact and the physical nature of the sport too much to want to give it up, even knowing that his mind is so important to him and that he is taking a risk by playing the sport. Every NFL player, college player you talk to will say, I love hitting. I love being hit. I remember Jake Plummer saying to me, the season hasn't begun until I get hit. I like those early days of training camp just to get hit once, and then I feel like I'm playing again. I mean, that's the sine qua non of playing football. You have to like hitting, and even though you don't like being hit as much, you have to accept that that's part of it, and you endure it. Um, You don't shy away from it. What's interesting about John Urschel's statement is that he's basically saying, I'm addicted to the hitting that I can't make a decision. Chris Borland was saying, I can love playing football and hitting and being hit, but I'm making a choice to walk away. John Urschel is saying, I love hitting and being hit, but I can't for whatever reasons that I can't 
really explain. Well, that's why I, I think the point that you made earlier, Stefan, is right, that the weeding out will probably happen more in the high school level, either by parents choosing not to allow their kids to play or kids, young adults, making the decision before they get to the higher levels. Because I do think that once you get to the level of a Chris Borland or a John Urschel, those players have been weeded out largely. These are the ones who've mm. been through you know, the sieve and it gets narrowed down to you have to really Love have talent for things. it, but also be willing to accept the pain and the hard work and everything that goes into it. And that's why I think that Borland is going to be so rare. But my, my favorite like version of the hot take-itis that's come out of this is um, you know, Florio writing, this is going to be a challenge for scouts now that they're going to have to ask at the Combine because they already do. Like, do you really love football? Now they're going to have mm-hmm. to ask, do you really love football? Yeah. There's a big list for them to get to. Is your mother a lesbian? I mean, these scouts ask really good yeah. questions. Is she a prostitute? That's another right. important oh, question yeah, to ask yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So Bobby Wagner says, no offense to anyone, but I'm playing until I can't anymore. I love this game too much. And Florio writes, that's what teams will be looking for, especially in guys who play positions susceptible con- to concussions. So, so those college players are going to have to add to the list of lies yeah. that they would never quit playing football for anything. In addition to I've never smoked marijuana. Positions. I've never assaulted a woman. Positions susceptible bad. to concussions. Oh, those positions. <laughs> Every position. Those football positions. <laughs> so as far as understanding the risks, and let's end on on this point, Dan Ingber, who writes very well and interestingly on this subject, notes that, you know, we've we've talked about this before. NFL players as a group live longer than, you know, age-matched, demographically matched people. And there's a small increase. Like, for example, Ingber writes that a full career of playing football might have added 0.13 percentage points to Borland's risk of death from ALS. And so that's why I think you're right, Mike, and you bring this point too, Stefan, that there's not a single right answer to that. And who knows when Borland says he's looked at the research, who knows exactly what research has been looking at? Does Did he consider the fact that he you know, might live a longer life by playing football, but there would be a small chance? Well, He's living a longer life because he's an elite athlete. And Chris Borland can still be an elite athlete without playing in the NFL. There's not necessarily causation. The USA team handball team is already (laughs) on the hunt for Chris Borland. Um, But you could look at different research and you could weigh that research differently to make your decision. There's not just like one study that you would read on brain injury and be like, that's it for that's me. It. I'm done. This is about well, psychological. I think, a lot of people mis- I think a lot of people misinterpret the data. I'm more on the Engber side. I think, Stefan, you and I disagree. Yeah. I mean, I think that it does increase. You always see these studies that it increases your likelihood twofold and threefold. But if you look at the raw percent chance of actually getting ALS, it's still in the low single digits, maybe not even 1%. So yeah, people yeah, way play- below fo- 1%. Huh? Way below, way below 1%. 1%. Yeah. So people- you know, it's to me, Borland has to calculate the risk, but the risk is extremely low. The rewards, not just liking hitting, but hundreds of thousands of dollars that could do things like, or and then playing in the NFL, investing and in getting healthcare for the rest of your life. Like that's, that's maybe overwhelming just in terms of health. You, that's one reason you become healthier if you play football and avoid serious injury. And let's make two other points here. One is that this is a psychological decision. Every human being is different about what risk level they're willing to take long term, how they view the arc of their own lives and how they're willing to compromise or not fear. Combine question. How do you view the making, arc of your life? Or not believe they're making a compromise. The second is that, that John Urschel in his in his piece in the Players Tribune wrote that when I go too long without physical contact, I'm not a pleasant person to be around. It's impossible to know, and John Urschel might want to think about that, whether the reason he's not a pleasant person to be around is because he's engaged in so much physical contact that mm-hmm. that is an in part of his life, and that's due to football. And that if he were to walk away from football, maybe eventually over time, he wouldn't be an unpleasant person to be around if he didn't um, sustain physical contact on a regular basis. Okay, for our third segment, we are joined by Andrew Miller. Andrew is the former editor of The Cricketer magazine and now contributes to The Times of London and ESPN. He is on the phone with us from London's Lord's Cricket Ground, established in 1814 
which is home to the world's oldest sports museum and includes such items as a sparrow that was killed by a ball in flight during a match in 1936. And that sparrow is mounted on the ball that killed it. That seems a bit on the nose to me, but who am I to criticize the MCC museum? Andrew, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you doing? In fact, I'm about 22 yards, about the length of a pitch away from that sparrow at the moment. So I'm at the other side of the wall I'm standing on. Can you buy a replica of the sparrow and the ball? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think they'd do a roaring trade if he could, though. <laughs> um, so the Cricket World Cup, Andrew, it's a 43-day event. How many sparrows killed uh, so far? I've, I think there might have, might have been one uh, one seagull taken out at one stage of the game, but uh, but no, no, it's been pretty pretty, pretty quiet on the bird killing front. It's uh, <laughs> it's surprising, really, given given it goes on so long. You'd have thought they'd have taken out a few more by now. It's um, you know the law of averages and all that. Yeah. So th- this thing does go on just forever. Like we've been thinking about when are we going to have the Cricket World Cup conversation on the podcast. We're like, well, we could have it in January. We could have it in August. <laughs> we could have it next year. Um, but at the at the end of the tournament, it seems like you have the four teams that you thought there would be, New Zealand and South Africa and one semi, Australia versus India and the other. So there's now conversation about whether the tournament needs to have 14 nations or um, whether it should be cut down to 10. That's been the proposal for 2019. So what do you think the, the case is for cutting it down or do you think that they should keep it at 14? Well, it, it's really two sides of the same coin here because um, really it, it boils down to what the Cricket World Cup wants to be. And as you say, it has gone on forever. And the largest reason it's gone on forever is TV revenue. People want, who, who pay the money for the cricket want to have as many games between the best nations as possible to justify the expense of paying the money in the first place. And on the flip side of that, if you want the Cricket World Cup to be this jamboree that, that takes in all levels of cricket, all give, give the likes of Afghanistan and co., the, the chance to have their day in the sun, you've got to accept that the cricket may not be of the highest quality all the time, but, you know, it's for the greater good of the game to give these guys the exposure. So, um, unfortunately, cricket is a bit of a strange sport in that um, it's only really played at international level in, at any great depth. And therefore, um, you know, you're going to have the likes of India and Australia and England who are powerful nations, and the likes of Bangladesh and Afghanistan, etc., who are not. So, you know, trying to trying to square this particular circle of how how you ensure that the competition is worth watching over the length of time and is 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 competitive and gives opportunity to to be a World Cup rather than just a little um, jamboree for a cliquey group of of well healed nations. Yeah, the, the debate has been going on for as long as the World Cup has existed, and I dare say it'll carry on once this tournament is over. Soccer seems to get its 32 team World Cup concluded in about five weeks. And every other sport has expanded, as you say, to try to encourage smaller nations to get better um, at the sport. You know, the Women's World Cup is expanding from to 24 teams this summer from 16. The NCAA basketball tournament over here has doubled in a generation in size. And as you mentioned, all because of television revenue. Is it possible that there's an international sports organization that is willing to take a cut in television revenue and to discourage smaller nations from getting better? in order, in the service of having more high-quality matches from the beginning of the event forward? Well, I mean, it, it makes no sense, really. If, we, if, you, if you look at it in the, that, that holistic point of view, do you want your, your sport to be a global player? Then, yeah, it makes absolutely no sense that, that people would want to chop nations out of the World Cup. The trouble is, uh, cricket's administrators, I think, have, uh, have accepted that uh, there's a limit to how much you can grow the sport. It's big in India, which is a massive market in its own right. It's big enough in England, big enough in Australia. There's no real desire among those three nations in particular to expand it to, to the rest of the world. They don't really want to give anyone else a chance to have a, a share of the pie. Which yeah, is, they're, they're um, just afraid of the United States. It's a peculiar way of doing it. They're just, so, afraid, they're just afraid of the United States, Andrew. Very like the United States. I mean, baseball in in that sense. I mean, cricket in India is like baseball in the United States. It's a, you know, you don't really need to extend beyond those boundaries to be a massive sport. And so, you know, you might as well um, put your put your time and effort into building franchises to build your your internal interests rather than building up other nations to build external interests. It's a, I, I think it's wrong headed personally, but it, but you know, it, it is it is the way that the sport seems to want to go. 
So 10 nations have test status, meaning they're the uh, the top nations, and it seems like a bureaucratic measure to earn test status as opposed to just winning on the pitch. I guess Ireland, would you agree that Ireland is the team that's knocking on the door? Give me a scouting report on them. What's the case that they should be included in this uh, sanctified 10? Well, the case for Ireland being included is that they have done absolutely everything that's been asked of them to be included. I mean, you know, these, this is the problem when you have a... A, a sport that's run by a bit of a cartel. You know, they they'll move the move the goalposts when it suits them. They they basically set these uh, goals for Ireland to to meet certain criteria to be considered for test status. It met them hands down, and now it's meeting them so hands down, it's beating all the test nations every time it comes against them in the World Cup. But of course, and that will move the goalposts a little bit further away. And oh well, you know, I'm not sure it's uh, quite time or the place for you to to step up. I don't think Ireland will ever be a test nation. I don't think there's, a, there's the will to upset the, the internal apple cart. I mean, it, it's so political, cricket, when you get to this level. And um, I think the, the allies for the big nations within cricket, particularly India, have their cosy little arrangements when it comes to voting in, in the power block that is the ICC. Um, you don't really want to have these interlopers come in to, to upset that arrangement. It's, uh, yeah, they, they, they should be given the chance. I just doubt they ever will be. And it's a great pity because, you know, they, they've been a real asset to the World Cup. In fact, Ireland's presence has, has made the, the opening rounds, that and England's incompetence, of course, has made the opening rounds of this, this interminable tournament um, very worth watching. So I was going to say, like here in America, we don't understand a lot of the nuances of the game or the terms, but I believe the term for England is that they are crap. Uh, <laughs> or rubbish? Is that is that another well, no, another term? Crap, crap, crap nails it. Yeah, the crap is. Crap. Why why are they crap? Explain. Did, didn't make it to the quarterfinals, by the way. Yeah, and that, that that in itself, this is incredible as well because the again everything I've been saying about the, this little cozy arrangement, the internal power structure, etc. All the chips, all the dice are loaded in favour of the big nations. The the whole tournament of the World Cup has been set up, and this is this is absolute gospel truth. It's been set up to ensure that the best teams cannot be knocked out of the tournament early. And England were knocked out of the tournament early. It, it beggars belief. They, they, you know, there, there was this situation uh, eight years ago at the 2007 World Cup in the Caribbean, where India, of course, the world's biggest test nation, were knocked out in the first round um, by Bangladesh. And, you know, this was, in, this was after a couple of weeks of the seven-week tournament. And so it absolutely decimated the TV revenue because no one wanted to turn up to watch Bangladesh in the final stages. They all wanted to watch India. And so they, they made sure that a big team could never again fail to reach knockouts. And England was so crap, they failed to reach knockouts. Um, basically, their, their whole uh, ethos towards one-day cricket has not evolved in 20 years. Uh, in 1992, they reached the semi-finals of the World Cup. They were arguably the best team in the world at one-day cricket at the time. And they're still playing the tactics that they used to get to that semi-final, in, to get to that final, sorry, in 1992. Uh, they have not evolved. The rest of the game is moving on, scoring 400 runs in innings as standard. England barely make it to 300 any given time. You know, there, there, there is no way on earth England should be this appalling at one-day cricket, but they just they just do not know what has hit them. The rest of the world has, has taken the game and run away with it, and they're just sat there thinking it's still the 1990s. I was I'm curious. Reading, get, I'm curious. Get specific if you can when you say playing the same tactics. What are some mistakes they make? Or uh, and Explain it to me. I don't understand cricket, but I can understand uh, stupid gamesmanship. Right. Okay. Well, in essence, England have got this very set Way, way they do things. It basically comes down to the three versions of cricket. You're probably familiar with test cricket, which goes on for five days and is very much about slowly, slowly, don't get out, block the ball as often as possible and ensure you keep your wicket intact because that's the key thing. And then 2020 cricket, the other spectrum, which is over in a flash. And so it's, you know, belt the ball as hard as possible, as often as possible. And who cares if you get out? And then there's the, the 50 over game, which is the World Cup, which is kind of halfway between the two. England's approach has been to take the slowly, slowly test cricket approach of, you know, don't get out, don't get out, make sure you, do, you, you, you don't screw it up. Whereas the rest of the world is taking this bis-bang-wallop approach of what the hell, let's just have a swing and see what happens. As a consequence, every other nation in the world is scoring twice as many runs as England manage. And England simply cannot get their tactics up to speed to recognise that, you know, what it's not test cricket that makes the world go around anymore. It's 2020 cricket. And if you start hitting as hard and as often as these other guys do, you might have a chance in these tournaments. Is that strategy or is that the quality of the cricketer, of the batsman? 
It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both, to be fair. I mean, there is a lot of strategy involved. It's also, um, it also comes down to the, uh, the priorities of these particular nations when it comes down to the domestic cricket that they play. Uh, a lot of what England play isn't quite the right type of cricket. For, I mean, for instance, they don't. They, you know, they, there's this IPL, the major tournament that uh, all the best uh, players in the world play in, in India in the IPL. Most of the England players aren't allowed to play in it because it com- conflicts with the English season. So while all these guys are rubbing shoulders for, for six weeks at a time to, to really hone their 2020 strategy and their hard-hitting strategy. England are back home uh, in very different conditions in early season. England, the ball swinging around, you can't really hit the ball very hard. They're just losing pace when it comes to what the rest of the world is doing. It doesn't mean they're necessarily a bad team when it comes to test cricket, but the trouble is they're the only team that really care about test cricket at the moment, where everyone else cares about 2020 cricket. <laughs> so they just have to convince everyone in the world that test cricket is way more important than it all the used other to be. That used well, to be know, how they I, did I, it. I would, I would <laughs> love to convince the rest of the world that test cricket's way more important. trouble is at some stage you've got to realize that um, the rest of the world doesn't agree with you. So I was us... just going to say it's hard, it's hard when you used to be an empire. It really is. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> okay, so... at, least we, at least we've got lovely architecture at Lord, you know. It's not, not all bad. Um, so give us a, a quick preview of the final four of the tournament. Martin Guptill had an amazing batting performance of, of New Zealand. Are they the uh, favorites? Well, they're, they're my favorites. I would love to see New Zealand win it. Um, I think I wouldn't say they are the, the favorites because they've reached the semifinals six times before and never got to a final. Um, so they're, you know, they're at their usual sort of finishing point in, in, the, in the World Cup. They are nature's semifinalists. But Fortunately for them, they're up against another team who have never got past the semi-finals in South Africa. So one of them has got to get to the final. And if one of them does break, break their particular hoodoo and get, get into that position, then uh, who knows what could happen. I think New Zealand are a great team. I think they've got everything they could possibly need, including um, the best bowling attack in the tournament. They've got uh, Tim Southie and Trent Bolt, who are just uh, properly attacking bowlers. I mean, they, 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 you know, in talking of this 2020 test cricket thing, they've got test cricket bowlers. They've got guys who try to get you out. And that's brilliant. If you've got the other guys who are trying to swing across the line and score sixes every shot, if these guys are just um, attacking the stumps and, and really going for wickets all the time, that's a very good way of winning. So they've got really good test cricket bowlers and really good 2020 cricket batsmen with, um, with Martin Guptill is, is the, the anomaly in all of that, scoring an enormous uh, double hundred. I mean, it, it, you know, I I've, I've, haven't stayed up to watch every single game of this tournament, but every now and again I... I stay up overnight, but this was one of the cases. You know, I'll just I'll just read the scorecard in the morning. My jaw has not ever dropped quite as far to the floor as it is when I saw what he managed. Two thirty-seven. Two thirty-seven. Not out by Martin Guptill. I mean, I, I can't think of a baseball analogy because my my baseball is not good enough. But think of a very slow plodding baseball batsman who has just hit every single home run going. I mean, it's just yeah, it makes no sense. Um, <laughs> but not what, a lot has made sense in this tournament. And Andrew, what about the other semi-final, Australia, India? Yeah, well, that's the traditional powerhouse semi-final. That's where the you know the two pre-tournament favourites really belong. So the fact that only one of them get to the final makes it um, even more fascinating. I I back Australia on home soil, but India, the defending champions, I think they've got eleven matches unbeaten in World Cups now. They've got Emma uh, Stoney, who's who's one of the the coolest men in cricket, who just um, somehow gets the job done every time he's asked to do it. They they will probably have um, three quarters support for India even though it's in Australia, cause just because of the wealth of expectation and support that India do seem to have for this tournament, it's going to be, it's going to be a massive, massive match. I mean, of the two, it's the one that uh, I think everyone will be hyping, but the other one's actually the one I'm more interested in because it's the two guys who've never quite made it to a final. And I think whoever does get to the final out of the other side, you know, just because all the attention is on India and Australia, I suspect whichever South Africa and New Zealand get to the final, they might just pull it off. All right, Andrew, sneak out of there with the ball and the uh, sparrow and uh, just, <laughs> just ship that over to us. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pay on delivery. Um, but Good stuff. Thank you. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be following the, the results for uh, the semis, see if you're correct in your predictions. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. All the best. Andrew Miller writes about cricket for the Times of London and ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter at Miller underscore cricket. All right, it is time for After Balls. And I didn't mention who killed the Sparrow. Wasn't Randy Johnson. He once threw a baseball that killed a bird. It was Jahangir Khan, cricketer, Indian man. It was 1936. The scene, Lord's Cricket Ground, the game, 
Marley Bone versus Indian Jim Khanna. Jahangir Khan bowls the ball to Tom Pierce, strikes, kills an innocent, unarmed sparrow, now on display at the MCC Museum at Lourdes. You can check it out on your next trip to London. I'm going to now. Now I want to go see that sparrow. Uh, Mike Pasca, what's your Jahangir Khan? What's your murdered cricket sparrow? <laughs> I hope to honor the following athletes as a murdered cricket sparrow. First, let's talk about uh, the promise and let's talk about peace. I'm, of course, speaking of the Amukamara sisters. They play for Arizona State. They'll be playing tonight against UALR. Do you know who UALR is? Arkansas Little Rock. Arkansas Little Rock. Very good. Yes. So they'll be playing the, uh, I believe, Spartans of Arkansas Little Rock. The Sparrows. Yeah. And the um, Mukamara sisters are sisters of each other. And also, come on, promise, peace. You Prince. know who their brother is, right? Prince, Prince Mukamara, the oft-injured Giants defensive back. They are one of several prominent Nigerians, not only in the sport of basketball. There's Jalil Okafor, who probably will be the number one pick coming out of Duke. There was a pass, not number one, number two pick, Emeka Okafor. They don't like the New York Times did a whole story on prominent Nigerian athletes. I do not think they mentioned Emeka Okafor, even though he is the highest draft status, but he could not hit a free throw and is basically out of the NBA. I do not know why there are so many prominent Nigerian athletes. The New York Times article written by Jerry Longman chronicled them, didn't offer much of explanation. I guess you want to tread lightly. You don't want to get it so wrong. But I've long been fascinated by Nigerians and Nigerian success because it always, well, a couple things. It does always seem to me that Nigerians are disproportionately successful, Nigerian Americans. But then again, maybe it's just because their names are things like Pisa Mukamara and Okafor. And so they stand out. So maybe there's some other, maybe Ghanaians are just as successful or Jamaicans are just as successful. But if they're last names are like King and Day, I wouldn't notice it as much. So you notice the Nigerian names, but I have been keeping a mental tally on this. And lately, two things, I came across two possible explanations beyond the classic, you know, these are uh, a lot of Nigerians in America left after political turmoil in Nigeria. They had to have enough money to leave. So they are an immigrant group that's drawn from a relatively high sector of Nigerian society. You have the striving immigrant story, which is everywhere. But there were a couple of things. One is I read the book, The Triple Package, and interviewed the authors, Yale professors Amy Chua and Jed Rubenfeld. Amy Chua, you might know as the Tiger Mom. And the book is uh, has some worth, has some questionable stuff. They say that if you have grit, if you come from a culture that both has a chip on its shoulder and believes in exceptionalism, those are the three combinations for different cultural groups to succeed. My problem with them, I got this into this in the interview, so by definition, if you're saying these are the things that groups have to succeed, when we point to the unsuccessful groups... You're saying they lack one of these things. Oh, no, 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 it's not that. It's other reasons. I guess they didn't have the braveness to say, and the Latinos don't have grit or whatever it is. But they talked about the Nigerians and they talked about the high achieving a couple of uh, tribes or ethnicities within Nigeria that are especially high achieving in the United States. And those are the Igbo and the Yorubin. Now, I've asked my Nigerian friends, you can't exactly go by last name. I know that Emeka Okafor is of the Igbo ethnicity. I don't know if Jaleel Okafor is of the Igbo ethnicity, but many of the American Nigerians are Yorubin or Igbo. So in the triple package, they talked about those two particular groups feeling exceptional. And if you go to Nigeria, other Nigerians will say, oh, you think so highly of yourselves. Yet as uh, the authors of that book point out, that is one of the things that correlates to high success. But another thing might be, just might be a gene. It's called by some the feel-good gene. It's Anandamide. Anandamide. And what anandamide does is makes you feel less anxious, makes you feel less stress. You're more able to forget fearful and unpleasant experiences. Weirdly, people with anandamide don't like pot. Well, I say weirdly, but I was really fascinated to come across this because I'm self-diagnosed as anandamide. I'm an anandamide. What's the opposite of sufferer? I don't know. I'm blessed. I believe I have to get tested, but I believe that I am blessed with anandamide. 
And it says in this article, also in the New York Times, I guess I only read the New York Times, it says that they do testing across populations and they say that 21% of Americans of European descent might have the gene, 14% of the Han Chinese, and 45% of Yoruban Nigerians have been found to carry this gene variant. So it's not a gene, it's a gene variant. It's not really the feel-good gene. It's a thing. They actually found it when they were trying to figure out what makes what makes cannabis work, what makes pot feel good. And so they kind of had to retroactively figure out what it was. And then they said, oh, look, there's this uh, gene that that correlates to feeling less stress, feeling happier. It's called a feel-good gene. I'm going to throw that out there. I don't know if I'm being Mengele-ish in my analysis, but perhaps many Nigerians ha- uh, have, like me, are blessed with this anandamide gene. Or perhaps, know. perhaps you're Nigerian. Yeah, perhaps on Nigeria. You know what? I don't know. I just know that Nigerians are crushing it on the basketball court. In conclusion, I call bullshit yeah. on this gene thing. But you don't think so? <laughs> hey, you know what? Your criticism of me just I it just flows off. I'm my not back criticizing you because I, just think, I have anandamide. I'm not criticizing you. I just think the gene thing that you talked about is total bullshit. You don't the Agumake, the Agumake sisters, both played yeah. at Stanford. Stars, mm-hmm. Nigerian. Sure, they were. I think they were one two in the draft. I think or were, no, though they both went one in different years, right? They were very high draft picks. Yes. I think they're not high on marijuana. They're feeling good right now. The uh, yes, the Times pointed out that other than the Mannings, those were the only siblings in the uh, in professional sports history to be drafted number one overall. The takeaway that I had was that non Igbo, non Yoruban Nigerians have no grit. Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah. Exactly. Stefan. I, I wouldn't draft them. I'd ask if I say, by the way, are you Igbo? I'm going to throw one else out there. You're Ruben. All right. He's going to NFL scouts. Please pay attention. All right. I apologize to any and all Nigerians. Uh, Stefan, what is your murdered cricket sparrow? I thought it was my Jahangir Khan. Whatever you want it to be. What is it? Well, Chuck Bednarik, Concrete Charlie, Philadelphia Eagle, played both ways, center on offense, linebacker on defense, and by the way, was a Pennsylvania Quaker. Uh, he died over the weekend at age 89. Bednarik was best known and memorialized in obituaries for a hit on the New York Giants star halfback Frank Gifford in 1960. The New York Times wrote that Bednarik leveled Gifford with a blindside tackle to the chest after he caught a pass from quarterback George Shaw. The AP's obituary said Bednarik knocked out Gifford with a blow so hard that Gifford suffered a concussion and didn't play again until 1962. Yahoo said it was one of the hardest hits the game had ever seen. NPR said it was one of the most severe hits in the sports history. The New York Daily News called it vicious. Bednarik's right shoulder landed squarely under Gifford's chin and sent him down in a heap. Last year, Sports Illustrated's Monday Morning Quarterback website said that Gifford was leveled with a forearm to the chest. In 2013, Philly sports writer Ray Didinger said that Betnarik was coming full speed in the opposite direction when he immediately leveled Gifford. So, was it a blind side tackle to the chest? Right shoulder under the chin? Forearm to the chest? Was Bednarik moving at full speed when he hit Gifford? Did the blow knock Gifford out? Was it one of the hardest hits ever? Let me answer all of those questions for you. No, 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 and no. Those answers are easily obtainable by doing two things, watching grainy YouTube videos of the play and reading the comments contemporaneous and later of Gifford and Bednarik. First, the video. Gifford catches a pass over the middle. He's running gingerly across the icy field from left to right. Bednarik chases from about five yards behind and facing Gifford. Bednarik over-pursues, and when Gifford cuts to his right to avoid him, Bednarik throws on the brakes, reaches back, and intercepts Gifford. The two collide left shoulder to left shoulder. Bednarik's left arm reaches across and stops Gifford's forward progress, and his right arm reaches across the back of Gifford's shoulder pads, and Bednarik pushes him backward to the ground. It is not a blindside tackle. Gifford sees Bednarik the entire time and tries to avoid him. Bednarik isn't moving at full speed. He's barely moving at all when they make contact. The initial contact isn't to Gifford's chest. Bednarik's right shoulder makes no contact with any part of Gifford's body. It's really not that hard a hit. It's an awkward one. An off-balance Bednarik blocks the much smaller Gifford's path and drops him to the ground. He doesn't even slam him. And while Gifford was indeed knocked out on the play and suffered a concussion, it wasn't from the force of the blow. As he said repeatedly in the following decades, he was hurt because his head snapped against the frozen Yankee Stadium turf. 
The always excellent sports writer Peter Richmond wrote The Glory Game, Gifford's book about the 1958 championship between the Giants and the Baltimore Colts. After Bednarik's death, he wrote that what's interesting about the play isn't the animalistic violence attributed to it, it's the restraint. Bednarik actually moves his head away so as to not go head to head, then corrals Gifford by the shoulders, Richmond writes. He says that maybe we should praise Bednarik for trying to set an example on the play and not trying to hurt Frank. Richmond goes on to note that what's really interesting about the play is also what has helped make it so iconic. The image of Bednarik poised over Gifford, pumping his fist downward as if punching out the fallen player. Richmond calls it the first taunt, but even that's at odds with history. Bednarik always maintained that he wasn't celebrating having knocked out Gifford, but rather having forced a fumble that sealed the win for the Eagles, a split second at odds with the rest of the sequence. If people think I was gloating over Frank, they're full of you-know-what, Bednarik once said. The hit, as it came to be known, was actually just a perfect piece of propaganda that the NFL was able to use to define itself as it soared in popularity in the 1960s and 70s, tough, snarling, merciless, unspeakably violent. As a piece of history, though, it's the product of faulty memory, fishtail exaggeration, and lousy reporting. The big three. It's got it all. Josh, what's your Jahangir Khan? So we talked about Chris Borland's retirement. It is also time to say goodbye to another young American athlete who's quitting his sport before the age of 30. Tennis player Wayne Odesnik announced last week that he's retiring, writing in a statement, to my now former colleagues, I wish you all good health and fortune in both your personal lives and through the remainder of your careers. He wrote it in in that exact tone of voice. Traveling the world and playing professional tennis is something I will always cherish and will never forget but I am now ready and excited to move on to the next phase in my life. Lovely, inspirational words. Now here's what Grand Slam champion Andy Murray had to say about Odesnik's departure from the tour. He is a cheat and it is good for everyone in tennis he has dealt with in the right way. So not quite the same tone. Uh, Odesnik's quote unquote retirement came in response to his second doping violation, one that led to him being banned for 15 years. So all that Odesnik's retirement letter did is foreclose the possibility of a comeback in 2030. As Murray's comments suggest, it would be hard to overstate how much this guy is hated in pro tennis and to explain why we have to go back to 2010. Uh, That year, Odesnik lost his luggage on the way to Australia. And when it was found, officials doing a bag check uncovered eight vials of human growth hormone. Odesnik initially lied about where he'd gotten the HGH and whether he had a doctor's prescription, but eventually admitted that he'd bought it off the internet and he got a two-year ban from the tour. That ban was cut in half in December 2010, as our friend uh, Ben Rothenberg explained in the New York Times last week, because Odesnik provided, quote, substantial assistance in relation to the enforcement of professional rules of conduct. So this is why Odesnik is hated. It's not because he's a cheat. It's because he's a snitch. In 2012, uh, Odesnik told the New York Times' Ben Spiegel, I would 100% never say anything bad about a player or do something that I was a spy or something of that sort. And like most things that Wayne Odesnik says, that doesn't seem to be true. According to Nick Harris, who writes for the website Sporting Intelligence and got access to a bunch of court transcripts, Odesnik got his suspension reduced for talking about both doping and match-fixing the latter of which we discussed on a recent episode of the podcast. The irony there, or maybe it's less of an irony than it's just how all justice systems everywhere work, is that Odesnik is the one who is both a doper and an alleged match match fixer. In another post on Sporting Intelligence, Nick Harris writes about the suspicious circumstances behind Odesnik's straight sets loss to Jurgen Meltzer in uh, 2009 Wimbledon, a match in which a quarter of a million pounds was placed on the gambling site Betfair that Odesnik would lose in straight sets compared to 10,000 pounds being wagered typically on comparable matches. That's 25 times more action. Uh, In his retirement statement, Odesnik made the classic, I took a contaminated supplement excuse, saying that he had sent it off to an independent laboratory for testing. We await those results. Uh, In his last professional match, He blatantly tanked a doubles match and the Maui Challenger event for reasons that at this point remain unclear. As he walked off the court after uh, losing on purpose, he refused to shake his opponent's hands. The umpire refused to shake his hand or the hands of any of the other three players. Pretty fitting into the career of the most hated man in tennis. 
Would you shake the man's hand, Stefan? No. Cheater? Snitch? <laughs> I might. I might, but he would, ta- <laughs> he would taint the sample of gentlemanliness that I was trying to exude. This, wait, I, I didn't mention the last fact that complicates matters. He is Igbo. <laughs> He's not Igbo. <laughs> he doesn't have anadol. Uh, we love your feedback and what we talked about it. today. I can't say it. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links. now, though. He might be Igbo. He's very happy now. He's feeling good. He's retired. <laughs> Post-career Igboification. It's the Yorubans who have it, not the Igbo. But Igbo is more fun to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> we'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Remember the Sparrow, too. Let's not forget the Sparrow. And thanks for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.